Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Jackie Apple about her book, Performance Media, Art, Culture. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Thanks for doing it. So uh, just in case there's anybody listening who's not familiar with with your work, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be uh, writing critical essays about performance art over the course of uh, many years? Uh, okay. I um, I grew up in Manhattan in New York and really um, entered the art world in the early 70s, uh, in part with the, the, the new wave of feminist art. And um, also uh, being involved with the alternative space movement. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, my my ex husband um, had a space on Twenty Third Street, and um, we had uh, perf- installations and uh, unusual and different works um, being done there by young artists. It was called Apple. And from so from 1969 to 1974, um, I was involved with that space. Um, we split up, and um, I around the same time in the early 70s, I began doing uh, feminist performance works um, dealing with image and identity. And then by the mid um, 70s, um, my work moved into a, a somewhat different realm of, of installations, multimedia installations, and um, and some performance. And I also became involved with um, the co-founding of Franklin Furnace, which was a space that Martha Wilson um, founded, and I worked with her on that um, for artist books because artist books were artists were creating works that were artworks and were also book works and there was really no place to show them at the time. So um, we opened this space on Franklin Street that became Franklin Furnace and became quite famous and is, still exists as a space, although no longer on Franklin Street. And I was the first curator from 1976 to 1980. Um, and I didn't really start doing critical writing in, until um I guess the first piece was maybe around 1980, but um, I left the furnace in in uh, 1980. I had a museum's grant from the NEA to as a guest curator at the new museum 
for a show called Alternatives in Retrospect, um, which was about the artist spaces between 1969 and 1975 that no longer existed. And um, that show um, was a was a fantastic show. I mean, it was a historical document because n- none of those spaces were around anymore. So it, it, it had a catalog and um, which I wrote the catalog for um, and, and edited the catalog. Uh, and then um, after that, in 1981, I um, decided to take a sabbatical and um, go to Los Angeles for a year. I had some grants and just do my own work. I was kind of burnt out from doing a lot of touring in the late 70s with um, when I started doing audio and sound and video works combined with performance. And uh, so I moved to L.A. in 1981. And when I got to L.A., uh, I was immediately recruited uh, first by Joan Hugo, who was the Southern California editor for Art Week, who said, you must write for me. And also um, by High Performance Magazine, which, of course, was the magazine for performance art. It was founded by Linda Burnham. Um, and uh, it was a fantastic experience joining up and, and becoming a contributing writer to both of those publications. Um, I was doing big uh, performance works at that point that were really like um, interdisciplinary performance, theater, uh, dance, sound combinations. Uh, and, and what, you know, I came to call performance as opposed to performance art. Um, and so I also began writing for other publications about performance, because at that time, L.A. was a very wide open place. It didn't have very many institutions. Um, MOCA was only just founded in the mid-80s, and um, there was LACE and a couple of other small uh, artist-run organizations, and that was kind of it. And um, so I was writing not only for High Performance and Art Week about um, all the work being done by artists, uh, not only who were um, emerging in Los Angeles, but also by many of the people who came here, as it was a really exploding uh, performance scene with the 1984 uh, um, Olympics here and the the cultural programming that went with that. And um, I also started writing for a publication called Media Arts and for a column for the LA Weekly, which was at the time the equivalent of or trying to be the equivalent of the Village Voice in New York, uh, along with whatever other publications um, asked me to write. So I was doing a lot of writing and producing uh, big works of my own, site-specific performances, performance operas, um, and installations. And I also, when I first moved here, was... um, invited as a guest onto KPFK radio and to play the record album I'd done um, called the Mexican tapes. And um, at the end of the program, the, the program director asked me if I uh, would like to do a program on KPFK um, because I had said, well, there are other people doing this kind of work. And, and I of course jumped at that. And so for 14 years, I hosted and produced a program called soundings 
uh, from 1982 to 1996. And um, I, uh, a lot of things ended in 1996. Uh, high performance ended, uh, the radio program ended, and I had sort of shifted from performance to doing installation works, a lot of site-specific works, and um, works that were dealing with environmental issues in, in the 90s. Um, and uh, the whole radio art scene that had been so powerful in the from the mid-80s to th- into the 90s also was changed. And uh, everything seemed to just make a big switch with the rise of the internet. Um, so uh, for a, a little while, I wasn't doing that much writing. I was really just producing my own work into the 2000s. And um, I started writing again um, for a little publication called Fabrique, where I got had complete freedom to just write about anything I wanted. And that eventually, several years ago, became an online column. So I guess that's the background. Um, and also returned my interest in artist books uh, around the same time. Great. Cool. Thanks so much. Um, could you give us a sort of uh, definition of what performance art uh, is, was, uh, what made it different from, you know, theater or other types of performance? And, you know, obviously it seems very clear what makes performance art different from, you know, uh, Bye Bye Birdie or something. But what what made performance art a completely different form than even uh, works by the Worcester Group or or similar, you know, downtown theater groups? What made performance art still another form? Well, this is a very complicated question that you're raising because, um, and it, it's part of what made me a very controversial critic in some ways in the 1980s in LA. Performance art, it, from from a particular historical perspective, is really a bracketed form that emerged in the 1960s, really kind of beginning with happenings, and really um, blossomed in the 1970s. And um, it was a visual art-based form. It um, didn't require that people have particularly, uh, what would we say, polished uh uh, performing skills. It it was highly autobiographical. It was very body centered, process based, often durational. Uh, performed in, primarily in gallery spaces, and then um, and and sometimes in in public kind of situations, um, and not in theatrical spaces. It wasn't. A, um, it wasn't rehearsed. It was much more about the art and life interface. When I started writing in the early 80s, I began to write about what was happening in Los Angeles and in performance as a whole the, with the rise of a new generation. And um, just, and, and you know, I could read from the, the very first um, essay in the book is called Performance in the 80s the TV generation. And it really focuses on the complete shift in influences for a whole generation of artists. Um, And, and 
it, um, if you'd like to read, yeah, go ahead. I'll just read this. Um, in terms of art history, the intellectual position and philosophical ideas of the modernist avant-garde were rooted in a belief in the future, the notion of progress and of the artist as revolutionary and explorer on the frontiers of the unknown in an ever-expanding universe of unlimited possibilities. Unlike 20 years ago, visions of the future, art or otherwise, are hard to come by these days, and the artist has become more translator than prophet. The stance of postmodern performance artists of the 1980s is characterized by a nonlinear, syncretic relationship to past, present, and future, the recycling and reinterpretation of already existing information, manipulation rather than invention. The work is distinguished by their use of conventional television, film, theater, and cabaret formulas and structures, illusionism, and deconstruction. Their sources of reference are popular culture, Hollywood, rock and roll, and new technologies, rather than conceptual process, visual, or feminist-based work of performance art of the 1970s. So, um, and then I, you know, go on to explore this shift in influences of this generation born between the Korean War and uh, the Vietnam War that grew up on television. Who are some of the major names from that period? Well, the the, the leading name of uh, that emerged in Los Angeles was Lynn Hickson, who was really part of a collective group of, of young artists. Um, she had been part of a collective called Hangers, um, which had people from a variety of disciplines doing big collaborative pieces, one of which, um, the last one of which was called uh, birds on pedestals with bomber ladies, and um, I described that in um, the the big piece that I wrote for um, the drama review, the life and times of Lynn Hickson's the L.A. years, uh, and and what that piece represented and and how it was structured, and all the people that it included. Um, the other, um, so Lynn, when she, when, when the group disbanded, Lynn formed her own group and um, brought a lot of other artists into it and did these, and she really shifted from performing to directing. And so these pieces were, were created in this kind of collaborative performance. And in that sense, its roots are closer to something like the Worcester group in the 70s, where they went through that kind of process in developing material. And um, a lot of the material that they used came uh, partially out of things that they took from media, including stories in newspapers. Um, let me see if I can... Uh, let's see. Were they aware that in taking material from newspapers, they were partaking in a theatrical form that dated at least to the Russian avant-garde of the 19-teens? Was there that historical consciousness? They were drawing on what was happening in the moment in, in terms of public media. So their sources were television, were, were generally media, television, film, print, um, and, and their own stories. And um, I guess I can um, best... Uh, 
this little paragraph kind of gives you a, a, a what um, a, what Birdson um, um, was about. Um, it was an hour long spectacle. It had a cast of twenty, nearly as many scenes, um, without any funding or guiding hand uh, or any single auteur, and it was only performed once. But it really was unlike anything else um, that was happening. So um, what I, what I, and it was different from New York. It wasn't like Eric Bogosian or what Laurie Anderson or, or even the Worcester group was doing. Um, the work was truly collaborative in the way that a TV series is a collaborative enterprise with Hickson, Jane Dubell, and Molly Cleeter functioning as producers, masterminding the conceptual structure and shaping the individual episodes created by independent teams of artists into a coherent whole. What could have ended up as little more than a variety show was held together not so much by the shared aesthetic, by a commonality of both cultural experience and the response to it. In many ways, Birds was truly a product of an L.A. sensibility in its methodology, its content, and its look or style. A similar worldview was, was show, showed up shortly afterwards in the early New York work of the young Tim Miller, who grew up in L.A. County. Um, and, and then I go on to say, and this is, again, defining the... the the differences uh, between this work and earlier performance art, which was very early performance art, you know, was very personal in in a and in, in life process in a different way. Whereas all of Hickson's work um, that followed, uh, including Bird's, traversed the blurred boundaries between public and private realities, between the world on the screen and the world in your living room. War is represented as fashion. Fashion postures as art, art parodies entertainment, entertainment sanitizes violence, politics and entertainment wear the same clothes. Camouflage is chic. Appearances are everything, and nothing is what it appears to be. Everything is a chameleon in media culture. In fact, camouflage itself was the meta text. And what I find really fascinating about um the, my writing from that period about the work that was happening is how utterly prophetic it was. We might be describing today, only more so. Yeah, in the which idea, those yeah. very things that um, emerged in much of this work and its concerns have um, exploded into the into the insane culture that we're living in now, where fact and fiction are indistinguishable and where media has dominated everybody's sensibilities um, to the point in, in which um, the boundaries between realities are so blurred that nobody knows what to believe and what is true and what is false and where image is everything and persona and celebrity replaces um, true accomplishment. Uh, that's great. It it seems like in a lot of your writing from this period, you have a kind of anxiety about this work 
that seems to be sort of related to the idea that in critiquing these forms of mass culture, some of these writers are kind of getting uncomfortably close to that mass culture and kind of offering themselves up to be co-opted in a way by Hollywood, by capitalism, by sort of the image machine. Um, Am I reading you right? Um, Yeah. um, I mean, this is not true of Hickson or, or any of the other people around her or, um, but it was, um, I do write about that in, in a much later chapter in the piece Commerce on the Edge, which was the second piece in the trilogy of about the overall performance scene. Um, and I think that's what you're referring to, is to that piece. Yes, Commerce on the Edge. I, I Commerce think on I, the Edge, the convergence of art and entertainment. I think that's one of the main pieces. I, I don't remember, the, one of the pieces, there was a line where, you know, you say these artists don't just want to comment on television. They want to be on television. Exactly. And I'm, I'm just turning the page in the book to that. Um, and, 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 um, and, and so it opens with, it is common knowledge by now. The avant-garde has ceased to exist. It has become a nostalgic memory for its remaining survivors and former practitioners a page in history for the generation that followed, a page turned at the turning point of the decorate. Performance art once operated on the edge, but performance art, I argue, several years ago is not a generic term. term. It is historically bracketed and refers to a specific body of work defined by a particular ideology and methodology that was practiced in the late 1960s and 70s. Um, and going back to your original question, you know, I say that um, performance art was a romantic endeavor, a revolutionary art form that came out of a radical time, but the times have changed. And then I talk about art as an endangered species, an American buffalo, a Tiberian, Siberian tiger hiding out in the Himalayas, or is it the other way around? Artists everywhere, commonplace and ordinary, prolific as cockroaches. Artists advertising, entertainment, fashion, decoration, and propaganda. Artists TV and terrorism is performance at its most spectacular. As for life, life is a performance, an artifact, a simulacrum, sometimes a little flat, a little one-dimensional, a little slow compared to the mirror image on the screen. And yeah, and then I go on to critique the appropriation in which the art world becomes the kind of, um, you know, a tryout zone, uh, like vaudeville was in, a, in another era, you know, or off-Broadway was for Broadway, where artists could hone their skills before going to Hollywood. And where spectacle replaces um, the individual endeavor, you know, opera being the new word. And there's a whole essay about that in the called commentary intermediate at the beginning of the book. Um, Yeah. And it talks about, you know, the co-option, i.e. everybody wants to be a star. um, Laurie Anderson, you know, signing with Warner brothers. um, And the point at which um, one says, okay, you know, where are the boundaries between um, media, theater, performance, or is it all mixed together? Um, to 
And and so, you know, a little later in that essay, I say, having adopted Hollywood's methodology, appropriated its imagery, uh, sought out its audience, what else is left for performance art but to move into its own house? The art world has become Hollywood's farm team. It is to the late 20th century what vaudeville was to the early 20th century, what Ed Sullivan was to TV in the 50s. It can lead to bigger and better things like stardom, like equal pay for equal work in the culture factory. From a tacky club in alphabet land, you can graduate to the equally tacky David Letterman show. From art theater, you can go to Broadway and on to the Academy Awards. You too can make it like Whoopi Goldberg. And, and uh, Showcasing in the art world can be faster and more effective than starting at the bottom in show business. If you are a performer, it's the perfect place to cut your teeth, develop a public persona and a following, get a gimmick, and practice until you get good. The success of first-generation crossover talents like Laurie Anderson and Eric Bogosian have made the art world a hunting ground for new talent. Besides, in the art world, you're not just another performer, meat for someone else's recipe, but the creator of your own material. Isn't that what separates the artist from the actor, for example? Isn't that why we call it performance art? And, um, you know, the interesting part about all of that is that out of, by the 1990s, what emerged when the economy kind of collapsed at the end of the 80s was that big productions weren't viable for touring. And... Um, the emergence of the stand-up solo performance artist doing autobiographical, writing their material and doing basically stand-up, which is where Tim Miller, you know,'s career um, really took off. And so, you know, the argument about what happened to performance art is is what happened was that it turned into something else in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. um, I, the other person I wanted to mention, which really shaped the 80s and is on the cover of the book and was also the person who everybody studied with was Rachel Rosenthal. Yes. Yes. And she, of course, brought enormous theatrical presence and skills to performance and was uh, very criticized by the first generation, you know, especially in LA, the first generation uh, feminist, what I <laughs> called the feminist fundamentalists. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I was not approved of by, you know, people who had been my friends and who I'd shown at the furnace in the 70s. Um, and I became really best friends with Rachel. Uh, a, a, not a student of hers, but a, a friend. And her work was so powerful. And of course, she had studied, you know, with Merce Cunningham and in Paris and had all of that background and was an extraordinary performer, a brilliant intellect and writer, and put it all together in a way that was a kind, a new kind of um, performance theater, a multi, an interdisciplinary multimedia uh, work, even when she was the solo performer, which she often was and just was mesmerizing. 
because she brought also to that kind of work a level of um, discourse and intellect and serious subject matter uh, that was um, truly expanded the form. And a lot of her work was on ecological themes, right? Oh, yes, all of it. And it was one of the great things that she and I both shared as artists. And, you know, even the prophetic nature of the work, because much of the work that we both did in the 80s and 90s has predicted the mess that we're in now. Um, it seems to me that with, with, with the exception of her work and, and Meredith Monk's work, that a lot of artists have had a really hard time making art about the climate crisis. Why do you think that is? Absolutely. That is. It's very difficult um, because... Um, how can I, I mean, I'm, I'm a friend of Meredith's and I, um, totally love her work and I've written about her work and, um, we, you know, we stay in touch and correspond and, and, um, have always been a, a deep admirer of her work going back from the early seventies when I first encountered it. Um, the games, you know, was brilliant in the early eighties. And then the later work that she's done, I think the reason that both Meredith and Rachel have been able to come at this subject matter in ways that many other people have not is that it comes from a deep philosophical and spiritual place. And, and Meredith's work in particular is rooted in her own rigorous Buddhist practice. And Rachel's work came from this intense and powerful um, um, love of the planet and, and much of the research she did and, and a philosophical belief in, in um, the necessity that if humans didn't change their ways, the planet would be destroyed. And all of the ways in which the way our, our culture, our, our economic system uh, the greed of the 80s, if you remember the, the phrase from the movie Wall Street, greed is good. Um, how all these things were linked together. So, you know, Rachel brought to the subject matter an immense um, base of, of interdisciplinary knowledge, research and intellect. Um, you know, and, and my work from that, about that um in, it really began also in the early 80s with, with a huge piece called The Garden Planet Revisited, which similar, and it was 1982, and similar to uh, Meredith's The Games in 1983, I think it was, um, both of them were set in a future, um, you know, in a post-apocalyptic future in which we try to understand what happened or, um, you know, explore the nature of that present. And in my case, it had a multiple timeline with an astronaut trapped in a capsule up in space that nobody ever came back to get him. And uh, the inhabitants on the ground who are trying to figure out from the witnesses and the storytellers what happened when the cities fell and, you know, and all the, and the floods and all the everything that came. In 1991, I began to do work about extinction and um, did a whole series of works called The Culture of Disappearance, um, installation pieces 
dealing with um, extinct species of the 19th and 20th century, again, involving a lot of research. But to ma- the challenge is to make it experiential. And this is why it's difficult for people. You can't, um, to be didactic, you know, it, it doesn't work. You have to immerse people. In the, in, which is what Meredith's work does on a deeply emotional level and what Rachel's work did and, and what my installations um, did in, in the aviary of the lost. Um, it was a 20 foot tunnel, really a corridor, four feet wide, knee deep in bird feathers with all the names written on the walls of all of the handwritten, the names of the dead, like the Vietnam Memorial, um, with a soundtrack overhead of wings flapping and and singing uh, a kind of dirge of the names. And, and you could only go in two at a time, and people went into it and experienced it. You had to take your shoes off and kind of live in it for a little bit and take it in. And so there becomes a visceral experience. And, you know, there are a few people today who I think are doing some works. Um, a friend of mine who's was the last uh, piece in the book, in, um, Entangled Waters, um, which was about uh, Robin Bissio's piece. And she's a choreographer and filmmaker. And um, she's doing these breathtaking um, site-specific dance works for film which explore um, this in very poetic ways um, by addressing the elements, fire, water, air, and earth. And the films are, they're short, they're incredibly beautiful in which her dancers don't dance on the environment, but they become a part of it. They They are immersed in it. And so I think that, you know, it, that's what makes the work successful. I think also um, Miwa Matriak has done some interesting work, Matriak, um, which she does live performances with animation projections, um, which are full of metaphor and poetry and really take, again, take the audience into this place. Um Another artist you write about in the section is Cynthia Hopkins. Um, and I, I couldn't help but noticing that uh, I think all of the artists that you write about in the section on works about climate are are women. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I, uh, to, to quote Rachel, Earth is mother, Gaia. Um. I think that women are um, really connected to, oh, how can I put it, um, have a, connect, a different uh, a thinking about our relationship to nature and to the whole birth and death cycle. And that this subject matter, um, you know, comes from a very different kind of place and and um and that there's a feminist a feminine and a feminist principle involved in the whole way in which one thinks about um the ecosystem of uh, uh, as we understand it the completeness of it of, of the interconnections 
So I think that, you know, in some ways there is a connection to feminism that has emerged in a different way in these works, whether it's in Rachel's work or Meredith's work or in Cynthia Hopkins. I mean, Cynthia Hopkins, you know, again, she went and actually lived it. And, and, and so her work comes out of a different place, much as Elizabeth Colbert in her book, The Fifth Extinction, uh, The Sixth Extinction, um, you know, she didn't just write about it. She went with all the scientists. She went underwater. She went to the glaciers. She went to all the places and thus was able to write about it in a way that was experiential. And so, you know, Cynthia Hopkins exploring going on a ship to the Arctic and then exploring it also through the um, her own struggle with um recovering from drugs and alcohol and depression, um, it becomes a metaphor, you know, the damage that we've done to ourselves, we've done to the planet. Yeah, it strikes me that one connection might be just that uh, feminist artists have now spent uh, sort of 40 years finding ways to make political theater, political performance, political art that also feels deeply personal. It seems like those are skills that would transfer very easily to making work about the climate. Yes, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, the the old phrase from 70s feminism, the personal is political. And so the environmental crisis, um, the climate crisis becomes personal. And there's... Yeah. And and maybe it's addressed from a deeply personal place. Um, Meredith Monks, on behalf of nature especially, is so mournful and, and emotionally wrenching. It it was it's an exquisite piece, and yes, it is. And and you know, I mean, she beseeches the audience to, you know, become aware, to connect. Uh, another aspect uh, of what you write about in this book that seems incredibly prophetic to me is your analysis of how technology changes the way we relate to each other. Uh, you write, it's not that I'm any less addicted to or dependent on the technology that has transformed our lives than the rest of you, but I am also perturbed by how it appears to have affected human relationships. Yeah. Um, which, which essay was that in? Oh gosh, I don't know if I have the citation right in front of me, but it's one of the ones from the early nineties. Let me see. Let, okay. I got it. It's uh sex oh, and technology. Oh, maybe was it slouching towards the next millennium? Uh, the essay is sex and technology, the politics of intimacy, uh, about forbidden planet. Um, oh, was that in the first section? Yeah. Um, Oh, um, I think you're, t are you talking about, uh, sex and technology? Yeah. Yes. The pot. Yes. Yeah. 1990. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> writing that in 1990 before all these things, you know, the technology we live with had emerged. I mean, that it comes through in a lot of essays when I'm exploring, you know, how artists, use technology, deal with technology, um, and the influence that all these, all these media have had on their work, how they integrate it and use it effectively, how it takes over our lives. 
And yeah, I, I personally, you know, I despise social media and what it's done to people and isolation it has creates and the false sense of intimacy. I mean, I remember saying to my students um, once when we were talking about this uh, and about the, 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 you know, the difference between an era when people all hung out in cafes and talk and had, you know, intense conversations about art and were face to face and, you know, debated and argued and the nature of their and, and created community around that discourse and the nature of their relationships on social media. And, and um, where I asked them, I said, so, okay, you have a thousand Facebook friends. How many of them will be there for you when your mother is diagnosed with cancer, when your girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up with you uh, with a text message, when, um, you're in an auto accident uh, alone in your car. Who comes to get you? Um, who's there for you emotionally when your dog is run over? You know, I mean, I brought all up, up these situations that people face, the kinds of crises. Where are all those friends? And they all look so sad. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, the latest studies in the past couple of years is that on college campuses, 80%, 75 to 80% of students seek counseling and they seek counseling for loneliness, for not knowing how to make friends or develop relationships, for feelings of alienation, isolation, and loneliness. So what does that tell you? And especially at college, which is probably, you know, the easiest time in your life to make friends. It's just in terms of you're all living next to each other. You have more free time than you'll ever have. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think performance artists of the 70s and 80s were insufficiently cautious about uh, emerging media? I mean, I'm thinking of someone like Laurie Anderson. Oh, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't exist. I mean, in the seventies, it wasn't even at all. The seventies is so much about materiality, presence, the body, interfacing with the body and with other people, and with psychological spaces, physical spaces, materials, processes—the opposite of technology. Did that change in the 80s? You know, the only person who, the 80s, technology was, first place, it wasn't available in quite the way, you know, it is now. It was pretty expensive to, you know, have a video projection in your, um, in your performance, you know, getting your hands on technology. It, It wasn't digital, remember? It was all analog. And, you know, I think it's the second piece in the book. I write about the three people who used video in performance and the challenges of that and and making it work. Because the power of the screen, if it is not, and whether it integrates or not, will grab your attention away from the live action. 
And, you know, and so, you know, those things are about three different works that used it as subject matter. Um, So the uses of technology in the 80s were really um, as a tool to enhance either as partly as subject matter, but also as as a tool to broaden the spectrum of the experience, complex sound works and um, and video, and of course, there was all kinds of uh, slide projection, etc. Um, it was. It isn't until this century that you get into, um, you know, with the advent of, of the availability of digital technology, where it um, replaces many of these other things, and what we end up is with spectacle, empty spectacle, all the bells and whistles, and nothing underneath. And um, and I think I wrote about in the in, when I wrote about Laurie Anderson's piece Dirt Day about the power of the stripped down performance of her alone on a stage with nothing but her keyboard and an upholstered chair, just telling her stories, without all the glitz, without any of the uh, any of that, and. Um, and and now we're just so overwhelmed with spectacle, the spectacle of daily life, the spectacle of the constant noise of the media, which, um, you know, has, has left everybody crazed. You didn't happen to see the newest revival of West Side Story on Broadway, did you? No. I live in Los Angeles and we're under quarantine. <laughs> Understood. But, uh, but I haven't uh, been out of my house to see anything since... March 7th, the last thing I saw and which I have been so distracted that I haven't gotten to write about yet, but it was, it was exactly what we needed. It was the, um, Toshi, um, um, Johnson Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan production of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And it was like a two hour gospel song performance it was like being in church, in african american church in which it explored the condition and and octavia butler wrote this in 1993 and she died in i think 2005 but it was so ahead of its time about people inside a walled community and then comes the apocalypse the disaster and how do they survive? And it, it, it's partially an argument about faith and and uh, what God is, God, you know, between the two, the younger and the older generation. But it was a powerful, powerful experience, you know, just as we're going to no longer going to be able to leave our houses to have this piece about people having to leave their safe environment. And essentially become refugees and flee and have to build a new, a, a young generation having to build a new world. And what would that be? So that's the last thing I saw. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It was pretty, pretty intense. I only yeah. brought up the. Um, I, I mean, brought up the, uh, did you read uh, the last piece in my column? The one about legacy, restaging history? Yes, I did. Do you want to tell us a bit about your argument there? Well, I mean, I've been writing about that 
that issue and the problems of it for a while. And, you know, the book has a lot of pieces in it that are about history and restaging history. I mean, the whole two big pieces, Dancing on History's Grave, uh, the piece about the um, Mi Lai, um, the piece called 1969 that was the uh, group Alarm the Sound. Um, all of these pieces which allow us to re-see and rethink where we've come from. And, you know, in an age where nobody has any memory, where historical memory is, is, is you know, vanished from a whole generation, and, 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 and there's this kind of amnesia in which n- nobody remembers anything you know, that didn't happen in the immediacy of the past five years of their life. I mean, think about a a whole generation of, I guess it's called what, Generation Z, that has no memory of 9-11. And it's the only reality of it is, you know, whatever media images remain of repeating images of a plane hitting a building and it falling down. Um. So I have written a lot about the necessity of understanding where we've come from um, in order to understand where we are and and to be able to speak about the present within the, the context of, of understanding the, the what's gone before you and the historical precedents. And um, so the last piece, that, piece I wrote... Um, deals with questions of legacy versus homage versus appropriation. And, you know, cites three different situations uh, of works um, that try to tackle that. And, of course, also there was the piece that I wrote um, about what I considered a, a, a travesty of a reproduction of um, Meredith Monk's opera Atlas. Um, in which you had mere appropriation into somebody else's aesthetic and turning it into contemporary spectacle entertainment in which the true deep spiritual substance of the work was um, subsumed to the spectacle. And she was as unhappy with it as I was. Um, um, But... um, the piece I just wrote dealt with how Simone Forti, who at the age of 84, um, with the help of uh, a group of young performers, um, and miraculously performed for an hour and a half, um, staged her early sound works from the 19, early 1960s. But um, they became completely contemporary because they... Um, didn't attempt to mimic exactly what she had done, but were in the spirit of, and were based in the aesthetic and conceptual structures that she herself had created, and then uh, which were which involved improvisation and chance, you know, and and were connected to uh, Cajun ideas and and also the uh, Gestalt aesthetics of of her own training with Anna Halperin, um, her time at Judson, um, and the, the, you know, the, um, the philosophical or roots of that kind of work, that, that um, exploratory work, 
in which you don't know what's coming next, improvisation, but improvisation only works when you completely understand what you're doing and where you're coming from. Um, and so the work was, it was simple. It was elegant. It was, she had two wonderful singers and two musicians, one of them being the son of Yoshiwada, who she had known at that time, who was a Fluxus artist. And, and he, her, the son Toshi was working with her in this piece. And it was, um, you know, it wasn't even a reconstruction, but a, a, a contemporary expression of her own work that, that um, continued its legacy and left it open to be interpreted and performed by others in the future based on the score. Um, and then, of, you know, so that is one of the truest ways in which, you know, work survives, work that is ephemeral, um, work that isn't set in stone, but is based on that immediacy of performing it. Um, which can easily be lost, but, you know, she has scores, which help. Um, and then the second piece that I talked about was um, uh, um, Dada Divas. And in that piece, the, the director-composer, um, Jackie Jacqueline Bobek, who is a, a vocal composer and also a scholar, and she had become fascinated with the fact that so many of the women who were part of the Dada, the original Dadaist era, have been overlooked by history, while the men's work, you know, is given all the credit, and the women disappeared. And so she went back and researched um, women performers, other than the ones that, you know, the few that are, remain in our history book, like Emmy Hemings. And so she took Hemmings and two other people that I, who have taught this stuff for decades, um, had never even heard of. But instead of attempting to restage their work as they might have done it, which is kind of difficult with the Dada work anyway, because it is really about the spirit of Dada, instead she paid homage to them. She paid homage to them by creating a, 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 an opera of a Dadaist aesthetic in which the visual, the costumes and the sets and everything were performed in the mode of a Dadaist uh, approach to art making, but drew upon the lives, the, the narrative of the actual women and drew upon their own original writings. And, um, and it was all, most of it was sung. So it was a kind of opera, a visual um, as, as well as um, musical performance um, using all, some of the Dada approaches to um, uh, fractured language and sound. And it was, it was stunning. It was too long. Um, it was a first time out. Um, and it opened up the possibilities to be reperformed in many different ways, in sections, um, in different, it, it was performed in theater at, at uh, Red Cat, but parts of it could have been done in a cabaret as other works, as the original Dada works were done, or in any number of situations, which um, the composer, Jackie Bobak, who I've had long conversations with, is, you know, really thinking about the ways in which you can expand and grow. Um, because it is based on this 
um, bringing this history to light and allowing these women to um, have their day, so to speak. That's great. The third work was a fascinating situation because um, it was a piece called Kurt Schwitter's Ursonata, a work which I know intimately, which bore no resemblance to Kurt Schwitter's Ursonata, but was in itself a delightful performance, a delightful theatrical, musical, visual um, performance, beautifully performed by a talented ensemble of actors, but it wasn't the Ursonata. It didn't even historically understand what the Ursonata was about or where Hirschfitters was coming from. Um, it, the notes said it was a Dada piece, which it was not. It was a very carefully constructed, really constructivist work, um, and it was based on German phonetics. It is in German phonetics, and it was performed here. It wasn't even in German. So, you know, writing about it was really examining, okay, draw upon a piece of history that inspires you, but then don't call it the Ursinata, which it isn't. Say whatever title you want to get it, inspired by Kirchfitters. And, you know, I went on to talk about the artist who has actually done some extraordinary work with the Ursinata as a visual and sonic performance, which was Jack Ox, and um, who discovered the original recording in Germany of Kurt Schwitters performing the piece himself. And I, um, and the reason I know this so well is I directed a short documentary film for her um, about her work, about the Ursinata and um, her visualization of it. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting to look at the problem of ephemeral performed works and how they um, how they can survive or not survive, um, depending on what's left behind and the attention given to the actual aesthetic. Is that part of your ambition in putting these pieces together into a book is to act as a sort of archive for these ephemeral performances? Um, yeah, one of one of the impetus for doing this is, you know, um, I've been writing over, you know, four decades, and most of the publications that I published in no longer exist. And that being the case, much of the critical writing of this entire history of the 80s, 90s to today um, can easily disappear and not be available. And I felt like, you know, I spent a couple of years finding the right publisher that, that I, you know, and this book contains 57 essays out of, you know, several hundred uh, different writings. And I, you know, intentionally only included critical essays, no interviews or any of those other uh, kinds of writings. Um, because this history, if it isn't printed in a book, will disappear. And, you know, I mean, even, you know, my online column um, can disappear. Their digital life is very, very fragile. Um, only books survive, you know? <laughs> Only what survives a thousand years in some library after the dark ages, mm -hmm. manuscripts and books and artworks.
And the problem with digital life is every time they upgrade an app, an app or change a format, everything has to be upgraded or it's no longer accessible. I mean, I actually did an installation piece in the 90s about this um, called Hidden Desires, which was in a um, in a storefront in Pasadena. Um, oh, God, what is, who's bothering me now? Um, okay. Um, and, and the piece um, had what looked like the aftermath of an earthquake of, of lots of broken uh, concrete blocks and, and earth and uh, other, you know, so a whole store window that could be the architectural collapse. And in it were all these, um, what we might call extinct technologies, reel to reel tape, uh, five inch floppy disks, um, you know, cassettes, uh, vinyl, all of the things that um, are a thousand years from now, no archaeologist would be able to retrieve any information from these things because one, neither the hardware nor the software would exist. So they would just be pieces of plastic. Whereas the, the earth, the stone, the, all the organic material would produce huge amounts of information. Uh, part of, at least in my understanding, part of the point of performance art initially was that it was ephemeral. There was the idea that because it's ephemeral, it's not going to be able to be co-opted by the art establishment in the same way. Exactly. But that the idea was that it's experiential. And that that fourth wall between audience and performer is also kind of broken down, which is why so much of it happened in galleries. And the point of it being experiential in the 70s also was um, the aftermath of, you know, 60s counterculture values. And and it's particularly relevant in, in the, the mess of the art world today because um, it was about not being commodified, not turned into commodity object for sale on the marketplace, that it was about experience, exploration, ideas, discovery, um, shifting one's perceptions, relationship to the material world, the physical world, um, and and in that very sense of of um, time based work, you had to be there to really have got it. You know, it's like I had the good fortune to have actually been standing there and be present when Gordon Mata Clark cut a house in half in New Jersey, <laughs> and um, or when Vito Acconci was. Um, under the floorboards in the Sonnabend Gallery, um, or, you know, at the end of the pier telling people secrets, or any number of works in which lines were crossed um, between life and art. and um, But those works were not merely surface. They were exploring um, various kinds of conditions um, and psychological spaces, physical and psychological spaces. And, and you know, the irony of all of it is that then documentation became important, although many works, not all works were well documented, but um, 
I remember um, sometime in the late 80s being asked to give a talk at um, Cal State Long Beach at um, an exhibition of Gordon Mata Clark's photographs of all of his buildings. And the photographs, of course, were documents of buildings that he had uh, transformed and then, of course, later got torn down, right? Buildings scheduled for demolition. And the interesting part of it was some of the students in the audience had it all backwards. They thought that the photographs were the art and that he had done the buildings in order to make the photographs, as opposed to the other way around, that the buildings and the process and the performance were the art and the photographs were documents. Yeah, that's a really interesting yeah, distinction really there. And, you know, it's why, you know, I keep writing about live events because I believe deeply in the importance of um, of live theater of, of in whatever form it takes. And I use theater in the broadest sense of the word of a performance space in which you are present and you are present with other people. And there's a shared experience that happens in that room, in that space between you, the other audience members and those people who are performing. And, um, it cannot be re-experienced the same way on a screen. You know, watching, which is why often video documentation of performances is not very effective if it's just a straight camera, you know, watching things happen, dance on a screen like, you know, little mice running across the screen. Um, but where in order to make that real, like my friend Robin, creates dances for filming. In other words, that she's also a cinematographer and a choreographer at the same time. But, but otherwise, you can't replace the live experience. You can't ex replace the energy that happens between two living, you know, beings, audience and performer. Um, and, and the emotional visceral effect of that, you know, it, it just goes back to the original source of theater in the Greek, which was catharsis in that, in a sense, in, in, in Greek theater, it was a form of therapy, if you will. Yeah, I, this has been a big discussion among theater people during this coronavirus shutdown is, you know, people are putting uh, monologues and plays up on Zoom and YouTube and stuff. And some of it's very compelling, but it's all kind of not quite theater, um, or at least it doesn't feel like. Uh, well, it's very challenging and difficult because in order for it to really work, it has to be so excellent in its its performance and its content. Otherwise, it just blends into the rest of the media mush. And, then, you know, we, we're living in visual pollution and overload. And as it happened, a theater friend of mine, and actually one of the people who wrote on the back of my book, Tony Abedamarco, who's a director and, and performer and an actor in Los Angeles, sent me a, um, a link just a couple of days ago to um, a, an absolutely stunningly brilliant um, piece, so perfect for this time that was created exactly for this moment. And it was basically a play performed by Netherlands Dance Company. 
Um, It was an extraordinary piece. It's, you know, spoken word and physical movement at the same time. Very simply in a room with a huge table. And it is a perfect reflection of what has happened in this country. I mean, immediately you're thinking of the whole thing behind um, the Trump impeachment and what went on with, with the Ukraine and everything else. So it's a group of people who are, you know, dealing with abstraction and language that covers any number of these situations in the um, underworld of politics. And, and the movement was so the clarity of gesture and the physicality of the um, four performers was incredibly powerful. And I'm not one who's easily moved by stuff that I look at on YouTube. Um, Speaking of another art form that might be particularly relevant during this time, you write a bit about uh, radio art. You at other times call it radio cinema. Um, Can you talk a bit about what that was? I mean, I I was barely aware of this. I mean, I knew Terry Allen as a country singer. Right. Well, that's only one part of of, of Terry's whole oeuvre. Um, Radio art is a unique art form that really emerged in the 1980s. Um, in, and it's not the same as radio theater. Here's where you have a very distinct difference between the, the traditions of original you know, radio theater and what radio art was. As different as what 1970s performance art was from you know, the stand-up so-called performance of, say, Sarah Bernhardt, right? And other comedians of the 90s who called themselves performance artists, right? Um, Radio art emerged in the 1980s in good part with the emergence of um, public broadcasting. FM radio made and public broadcasting, non-commercial stations, made it possible. Um... NPR and KPFK, you know, Pacifica Radio, and college radio stations. And what made um, the emergence, really, of radio art as a whole community and art form possible was really one woman, Helen Thorington, and at that time her partner, Regina Bayer. And they founded an organization called um, New American Radio. Um, New Radio and Performing Arts in New York. And um, they commissioned and distributed works. And Helen herself was a writer, composer, and radio artist who had been creating sound works for broadcast. And the idea of creating sound works for to be aired, to be heard specifically through that medium, means much like video art, you have to address the nature of the medium. So um, one, you can't simply say, oh, I'm going to make a work, um, a play, and then play it on the radio, and it's radio art. No, it's still a play. And um, so much of the work... Um, address them, not all of it, but some of the work address the nature of the medium itself and the way in which we listen. So you have a whole range from um, works that were dealt entirely with sound uh, and, and created spaces 
aural spaces that the the listener could inhabit, but not be there physically. Um, um, and in the case of Helen, some of her most brilliant work was, in a sense, almost creating a cinematic experience with no words, a narrative created by sound and place. Um, and then you had people like Gregory Whitehead, who were really involved with the nature of language, language itself and the physical properties of speaking, the voice, and um, and, and creating a whole um, the things that you never would have heard on radio. I mean, just completely different kinds of narratives or, or let's say, experimental language pieces. Um, the cinema aspect, Terry, Terry's pieces were really like movies created for radio. They were, um, they were scripted in a way that you would create cinema, not how you create theater. And they used a cinematic uh, syntax of um, imagery you know, of cuts and dissolves and close-ups and medium shots and long shots and all of the other, the basic language of cinema, cinematic montage. Um, and the other part of it is that this kind of radio art addressed the way many, a, a majority of Americans and in the 80s and 90s listened to radio, which is in their cars. And so the third part of radio art and the experiment that happened, you know, from the 80s through the 90s, and which is basically gone, completely gone in this century, um, is that it was also a way to subvert commercial media in that um, artists and, and the people who made radio art came from music, from writing, from visual art, from performance, from the whole range of interdisciplinary arts. But the idea was to insert the artist's voice into um, mass broadcasting, into the airwaves, where the artist's voice never exists. And, um, and it was remarkable because I had a radio program that I produced and hosted to play this kind of work along with experimental music and all kinds of vocal works and interviews um, to... Um, reach listeners that you didn't know who they were and where they were and out there. And, and I particularly remember this experience of, um, I had played the garden planet, um, piece, I don't know, weeks before. And I got a call from a listener, uh, a man who said, Oh, you know, I, I heard this piece. I was driving, um, somewhere in orange County and uh, I heard this piece on the air and I haven't been able to get it out of my head. And I'm wondering if there was a way in which I could purchase it or how it would be available. And, and I said, do you know the title of the piece? He didn't remember the title, but I said, can you describe it to me? And he described it and I realized it was my piece. <laughs> and he said, um, I've been thinking about it and I, I was hoping to get to call you, but I had to wait until I was out of uniform. And I thought to myself, who is this guy? Is he a cop? Is he a fireman? You know, is he a, a soldier? Somebody who would not be my normal, you know, art world audience. And he was captivated. And I said, you know, 
send me, you know, give me your address and everything and I'll, I'll, um, you know, you can send me a check and I'll send you a cassette. And this was broadened greatly by the, the series that I did, the collaborative series called Redefining Democracy in America in 1980 and 1991, 92. And, um, it came out of two things, three things. One was the LA riots. The other was the first Iraq war. And thirdly, the presidential election. And, um, the first three sections were collaborative work with two African-American artists and another woman, white woman. Um, and um, we vowed that we would go deep and be real and write a piece together in sections and perform it in which we would confront things truthfully, even if we offended each other, which was very brave. And so um, I set up a structure for. Um, and this is why when I say radio art, it was not like anything you would hear. The structure was that each of the other three artists would have the first 10 minutes of the half hour program to establish the topic or theme and perform their piece. And as the producer, um, I also did the sound design for it so that the sound design for the first piece would extend itself into the response pieces. And then the other three artists would each have five minutes to do their piece in response to the first piece. So it's text and sound based. Um, and we did three, three half hour pieces. When we presented it on the air, we opened the phones for half an hour for listeners. And it was an experience that the four of us had never had in any of our and one performer was a poet, the other was really a, a performer, writer, director, um, and, and the other was a performance artist and writer. So in all of our works, none of us had quite had an experience like what happened by putting this work into the airwaves. And that was that people called up and they were so profoundly moved by what they had heard that they felt that they could, if they wanted to be able to buy the cassettes so that they could take them to their community groups, their, their kids' schools, um, their churches, uh, whatever other groups, and to be able to play these tapes as a basis for discussion about the issues and among central to the issues in these tapes was the questions of race. Um, and so the, the artwork became a vehicle um, for transformation for other people to extend outward into other communities and their lives. And then the, the next two parts, I um, created an on-air thing where people were given the opportunity in which they had three minutes to address their fellow citizens as if they were the candidate for president. I said, what would you say to um to Americans um, in terms of what is your vision for the future? If you, you know, if you are the presidential candidate, what is your vision for the future? It was unbelievable. I mean, I got the whole range from right-wing crazies to left-wing crazies, but they, they, you know, there were rules for this. And then I took many, many hours of live radio air programs and 
uh, collaged it into two half-hour programs, which were played in October, the month before the 1992 election, in which I just opposed all these different people from all walks of life, of every race, gender, religion, and revealed their commonalities, despite their ideology and the emotional underlayer, the metatext of this longing for something better. What what were the emotions that? Um, and the last part of the series was, was just a piece between myself and Keith Antor Mason, in which was a very, um, very poetic piece and a dialogue between the two of us that was turned into a, a piece of poetry. And um, but but so putting that kind of work out into you know to make it for radio, you're making it to enter people's lives in a different way. And there's other artists, um, um, the late Don Joyce and Donald Swearingen, who took all their textual parts of their work from actual radio and TV late night things, commercials, and and um, created soundtracks that were just devastating in the ways in which they explored um, the American um, media landscape. And um, and then, you know, people like Terry and Shelley Hirsch and others um, did works that I call cultural autobiography or speech as culture. And the ways in which the vernacular of speech um, and basically works that explored the American cultural landscape through vernacular speech. Great. That sounds like a... And you yeah, just don't get a, that. Sounds like a very exciting uh, moment and movement. Um, could you tell us a? It was uh, tremendous. It was amazing. It created. There was an international community of people making work, but the American work was very specific and different from any of the European kinds of things. The American work was represented a kind of multicultural American voice and American landscape. I mean, Terry's work, and this is the fascinating thing about Terry's pieces, Terry's work represented a part of American culture that really isn't seen in the art world, which is white working class America, you know, people who vote for Trump. He's from Lubbock, Texas. And that voice, you know, that he brought to it and his piece um, Bleeder, and, and which is, you know, really about Texas, is absolutely stunning in, in the history that it explodes and the culture, the Texas culture, and it's all in the voices. And Joe Harvey performs in it. And, and it, it, you know, it's irreplaceable. Nobody else has done that kind of work or talked about the culture in the way that he has. And, and Dugout, which he draws autobiographically from his own family history of, you know, Southern white working class culture. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how uh, essentially capitalism ruined this movement? You talk... Well, capitalism has ruined, I mean, capitalism has destroyed the art world because the art world is about nothing but money now. And, and um, you know, I raged recently, I haven't published this because it's a, a really tough rant. Um, you know, the recent art fair, the whole art fair thing is about nothing, nothing but money. And 
A-listing and who's on who who's who's got clout in the auction block and what has nothing to do with the quality of the work, has nothing to do with its content, nothing to do with its audience interaction. It's all about commodity trading, like stocks. You know, it's like um, um, the the TV series Billions, and the art fair freeze with its $150 tickets and its uh, celebrity audience is all about spectacle. And then comes out the fact that who funds Freeze? Who's who's their financial backers? Want to uh, take a guess? The Mercers? No, it's okay, Deutsche great. Bank. <laughs> the okay, people great. who have funded all of Trump's dirty money. Uh, in the in the case of radio specifically, uh, in the, in the, the people who funded yes. the Holocaust. <laughs> okay, Deutsche Bank, and and you know, and when you say how is capitalism, and I thought to myself, if this were 1969 instead of 219, the Art Workers Coalition would have been out there ranting with picket signs. Artists would have pulled their work out. But not in today's world. Everybody wants to be noticed. Everyone wants to be a star. Everyone wants to make money. Everyone wants to please the celebrity audience and be a celebrity. So where's the ethics? Where's the moral integrity? It's just gone from the art world. And and all the interesting work, and and what I have seen of the most interesting work that's happened in, in exhibitions or 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 uh, in performance has all been by artists of color who've been on the margins and who have something to talk about besides money. You write a lot about artists from the, no, no, no. I know that sounds harsh and politically incorrect, but you know, it's, it's, and, and, and art schools in the nineties, you know, and I taught in one didn't help of, you know, prepping graduates, art students for, how to make it in the art world, you know, how to have the right theory language, how to have the resume, how to be postmodern and uh, nothing, you know, and how, how to get a gallery. And if you didn't get a gallery in your 20s, then, you know, you'd never make it and make money. So here we are, you know, and and. We can go all the way back to the 80s where this starts. And I once interviewed Robert Longo for um, a catalog called The Art of Spectacle, in which we interviewed six different artists, including Rachel Rosenthal and Lynn Hickson. And and Robert Longo, I remember him saying, you know, and I had met him earlier once up in Hall Walls when I was a visiting artist and he was the director, him saying, we're going to wipe your generation out. People want things to buy and hang in their houses. We're going to give them what they want. Objects. Jeez. And when I interviewed him for this catalog, um, he said, um, first I'm going to be an influence in the art world. Then I'm going to go to Hollywood and conquer Hollywood. And then I'll go into politics. Talk about ego. <laughs> he was young, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I, that's, a, that's a stunning thing to say to somebody. Yeah, yeah. But that was the mode of, you know, the 80s. It wasn't punk like in the 70s or um, earnest hippies or any of the other, you know, things that came out of all of the movements of the 70s. It was definitely all about money and stardom and playing the market and power, power and and power for all the wrong things which is why we've ended up in an extreme society of spectacle and of inequality and decadence and, inequality. and decadence decadence the true meaning of decadence of where things reach an end and just begin to break down yeah i often hear the sort of argument of like well you know we live in a capitalist system you have to make a, make your living somehow what's What's wrong if I sort of cash in? And I guess there's nothing wrong unless you think there's something wrong with capitalism itself, you know, or. or... You know, and I'm not some, you know, leftist socialist and I'm, I'm, you know, on about um, there's capitalism and there's capitalism. You know, we we have corporate socialism. Um, Capitalism. When it's when you have, you know, and and I mean, okay, I could take my my quotes from Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. When a few people, a tiny number of people are so rich and control everything and a few corporations are controlling our mind in Silicon Valley, you know, is controlling your life and turning you into a drone robot totally dependent on them unable to live or function without them. And you have companies that can destroy the planet, you know, in which profit over the good of a country and the good of of people's health and everything else that goes with it. That's not a kind of capitalism that, um, that's what's destroying the planet. Whereas nobody is against the capitalism of people creating, you know, businesses and making good products. And, you know, I'm old enough to have grown up when products were beautiful and they lasted forever. And um, they weren't made to um, break down when their little time code went out and could never be fixed and had to be thrown away and replaced with another piece of junk, Um, which is what we have. Everything breaks Everything's made out of plastic. Plastic doesn't disintegrate. We destroy the planet and um, and the planet's going to get us. It's over. You know, we're already there. We're halfway there into what cannot be stopped and fixed. And the same companies who are uh, causing this ecological catastrophe are the ones who are bankrolling the art world. Ah, in some cases, um, or the rich, or the, the rich people. You know, I mean, the the latest the latest um, new product is luxury bunkers for the very rich. I read this in the business section. It's doing very well. Luxury bunkers with screening rooms and hot tubs to protect the very rich from pandemics and ecological. St- 
disasters and all the rest, because pandemics are just the result of, of this eco, this climate crisis. So, you know, yeah, we're talking about, we're, we're talking about capital, evil capitalism, okay? Yeah. As opposed to um, good capitalism. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, maybe we'd be in a slightly different place if people had heeded your, your warnings uh, in, in these uh, art journals 40 and 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what the piece slouching towards the next millennium was about. And when I, re- you know, I had to reread everything to, to work with my editor on this book and go through all these things. Not only that, I had to retype everything that was written before 2000. Because I didn't have any, you know, it was all written on typewriters or computer files that I couldn't open, right? Yeah. And um, it was shocking to me how prophetic that piece written in 1989 was. It could have been written yesterday. Yeah. And, And that was true of some of the pieces that were written about censorship, including censorship on the left as much as the right. Um. And I'll just I'll just read this to you because it's such a profound prophecy. And it's the first page from that piece called Slouching Towards the Next Millennium, Some Meditations on Art in the 21st Century. It's a smoggy, overcast afternoon in America. A jaundiced haze hangs over the horizon. And the breeze that's blowing off the Potomac has an unpleasant, noxious odor like the mix of expensive cologne and gaseous farts. It's no longer morning in America. The shiny white paint on Ronald Reagan's picket fence is cracking and beginning to peel. That's what happens, as any great painter knows, when you try to cover over those grimy old oils with fast-drying acrylics. It doesn't hold. The 1980s are over. Slippage has begun to occur. New fault lines have been identified all over the Los Angeles basin, not just the big San Andreas. They're running north and south, east and west, like a grid of shifting social, cultural, and economic demographics. And the quakes this year seem to come with the changing tides, as surely as the phases of the moon. There are cracks in the foundations of power around the world. There are rumblings of change swelling into a roar. Things are not as they appear on the surface, or maybe it's just that we aren't looking and listening properly. It's dusk in America. It's the end of the decade, the end of the 20th century, and the earth quakes. The center has become unglued. The center has moved elsewhere. The 80s are over. The decade of glitzy surfaces and snappy slogans, of high fashion cynicism and glamorized greed, is done. Dynasty has been canceled. As Donald Cuspid put it in his critique of 1980s art, the opera is over. But it was a soap opera, a television infotainment docudrama, a decade-long maxi-series, a retro fantasy, quick fix, hot flash, hyped-up hit, as if wearing dark glasses could keep out the night, as if other voices would remain silent just because they didn't have the microphone, as if things could replace thoughts. The year 2000 is upon us. The millennium is almost over, preceded 
in our consciousness by the baggage of Nostradamus, George Orwell, Buckminster Fuller, Stanley Kubrick, the replicants of Blade Runner, and the entire cast and crew of the USS Starship Enterprise. Beam me up, Scotty, into the next century, into the next millennium. Now, if that isn't a prophecy, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what is. It, reading your book, I really had the sense that the only things that you write that haven't aged well are your occasional moments of optimism and hope. Yes. <laughs> right. My, my optimism of like, oh, but we can do this, can't we? Yeah, you, you know? go to Prague after the fall of the Berlin Wall and you're like, oh, maybe this will turn out well. And Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, oh, my, look at this. The awakening in Prague, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and now what? Where's Hungary? It's back under a full dictator, right wing dictatorship, right? Yeah. Prague's doing OK, but that's kind of the exception more than the rule. Totally. Poland yeah. has gone right wing. You know, Russia, the Soviet Russia, Union collapsed and it didn't, you know, Russia had no history ever in its existence of any kind of representative, you know, parliamentary government. So, you know, what did you expect? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I loved that passage about the condition of artists in America mm-hmm. and where, you know, where it is about the artist says not having any power, right? About who will set the the agenda for the next millennium. That passage, an uprising of Japanese women will that will shake the foundations of a thousand years of tradition. Hordes of Islamic fundamentalists ranting dark age ideology while brandishing up to the minute high-tech weapons. Yeah. Greenpeace activists yeah. Determined to save the ecology of the planet and lead us from self-destruction to life preservation? Righteous American Christian fundamentalists burning down libraries, museums, and Planned Parenthood centers? Communications conglomerates? Chinese students? Enlightened extraterrestrials? Biochemists creating life in a jam jar in the laboratory? Genetic engineers? Artists? Writers? Intellectuals? Artists? Maybe in Estonia or Latin America or China, but not in America. In America, artists have no status or value outside of the marketplace. In America, artists have been co-opted by the values of the marketplace. In America, artists are an elite clique of ineffectual intellectuals talking to themselves. In America, artists are lazy parasites who should get a job. In America, artists are black Marxist homosexuals. In America, artists are all white lackeys of the rich. In America, artists are decorators and entertainers. In America, artists are sacrilegious, sexual, libertarian, perverts, and pornographers. In America, artists are chic. In America, artists are irrelevant. In America, artists are celebrities. In America, artists have no power or influence. In America, artists should be censored. And that, of course, is a piece of satire. Yeah, eventually it becomes obvious that that's a piece of satire. Yeah, right. And that was 1989. At the height of the culture wars, remember, with Jesse Helms and all the right-wing media reactionaries? Yeah. And, you know, the closing of museums over Robert Maplethorpe and, you know, the defunding of the NEA4. Everybody's forgotten all that. 
you know? It just vanishes. And that's why I had to write this book, is because there's a whole section about the culture wars in it, you know? Um, especially about Rachel giving back her NEA grant and things like that. You know, the section called The Politics of Culture. Well, I think we should, uh, I've, I've taken up far too much of your time already, and I, I think we should leave uh, some some topics sort of mysterious so that people will want to run out and get this wonderful book. Oh, thank you. You know, I I just wanted to survive and for people to understand that we need to have a long view, not the short view, and that we cannot in any way make a better future if we don't understand our past. Yeah. And that people yeah. have been artists and thinkers and writers and and uh, have been talking about this stuff, you know, not just me in the 80s, but people have been talking about it since the 70s and 80s, the whole eco-crisis, and nobody was listening. It's all been ignored. And now we are at a place where people need to wake up and really pay attention and listening because their lives and their children's lives are all at stake. And whether we're going to live in a Westworld techno-fascist future or we're going to live in, you know, an Orwellian, well, we already are living in an Orwellian monstrosity, um, you know, or, or what? You know, what, how are we going to survive in, you know, uh, an Octavia Butler vision of a new world order of, of community and love? I am I'm personally a pessimist, but um, given the state of things and that perhaps the whole climate crisis is what will save humanity by a cleansing. And, uh, and people just will have to shift their values and realize that things don't matter as much as thoughts. Well, that's a great place to end on, Jackie Apple. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. This really has been a joy. It means so much to me. And um, hopefully, you know, um, people will be able to get this book when the, the distribution warehouses uh, open again and bookstores are open. Yeah, definitely. <laughs>